0: There's a trend in in church culture. It's not necessarily old, but it's it's gaining prevalence, and that's this this idea of the celebrity pastor. Uh, If you look at the churches that you see beyond the one that you go to, are the ones that have, you know, a massive production presence. They may be large, they may be small. This isn't about church size, but you almost always have one thing in common, and that's that you have this pastor that everything centers around. And so the church kind of lives and dies by the character or even the charisma of of that pastor. And so part of why this is so hurtful and damaging is that, you know, when you have a church that has been around for some time, you know, pastors come and go. Uh, Believe it or not, we would love to know know this, but, you know, I will not be here 30 years from now, 40 years from now. Uh, At some point or another, I'm at the very best scenario, going to retire, and at the very worst scenario, going to die while standing up here. So one way or another, you will be rid of me. So maybe that's good news to you. <laughs> Who knows? But this idea of celebrity pastor is, is an incredibly damaging idea that hurts the church, because what happens when that person goes? Right? And so in, in discussions and conversations with, with church leaders, if you go to, to conferences and you read the right books by the right people, one of the things you learn really quickly is that if you're in, in the church world, you want to practice what is known as good generational leadership, right? You want to think about how to make things, not about you as an individual, but about the institution that God has given us as his bride, the church. And so there should never be a church where, the, where things can't function if the pastor needs to be replaced, right? If this place ever becomes about me, my prayer and hope would be that you could just run for the hills, like that I show up one morning and there's like two people sitting in the sanctuary because that's not what we should be about, right? And you as a church, uh, you may not even know this, but you in some ways have already benefited from good generational leadership, right? I'm not standing here by accident, right? Many of you know, I mean, I was here in this church for just over two years before I accepted the call to be your senior pastor. And that didn't just happen by some circumstance beyond anyone's control, right? I knew the former pastor. And he brought me in here to to become a part of this body and to worship. Now, he didn't hire me. You did. But he put me in a situation where I was confronted with this church. I got to be a part of it. I got to do some leadership things. And I got to have some positions part-time and full-time. And you got to know me and I got to know you and he developed it so that should the Lord clear that way and should the Lord call this church to it, that you might call me as your pastor, right? That wasn't necessarily like a goal that he said, you know, I I'm I'm, know I'm going to be leaving, so I got to bring in my replacement. That's not always how it works. But there was an element to which you, you train up the next generation of leadership, and you always want to be thinking about, whether it's as a pastor or as a member of a church, and you're dealing with other Christians and you're mentoring people or you're being mentored, right? You always want to make sure that you have people above you and below you that you're training up in the next generation of leadership. As we look at the book of Judges today, you know, we intro last week, we're going to get into the thick of the Judges today, and we're going to look at the first two. The first one of this is at play, This, this dynamic of generational leadership shows up in the first judge. And so we'll take a look, but just real quickly, a reminder before we do that, the the judge's cycle that we talked about last week is, is right up there. And it's this pattern that we're going to see starting in chapter three, all the way through till almost the end of the book. right? It's that Israel falls into sin, they worship other gods. They do the things the Lord thinks are evil in His sight. And so the Lord is going to give them over to various tribes and people groups. Right? Each judge cycle, it's a different group. And they're going to be taken over by them and oppressed and have to follow their ways, almost like kind of like mini exiles in some way, right? And then after that's done, they're going to cry out after a certain amount of years for help. They're finally going to come to terms with the fact that they've not done things right. They're going to ask the Lord to deliver them. And the Lord is going to show his mercy over and over and over again, right? We have this saying of fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you. Well, the Lord in Judges lets him fool them like seven, six, seven times, and he continues to show mercy, because the Lord is not fooled, the Lord knows what he's doing, and so he raises these, these judges, and we've talked about the fact that none of them are really, truly awesome people, right? These aren't like heroes of the faith that we should look up to. These are flawed, sinful people that are, some of them are just messy, like some of them you wouldn't let your children within 100 feet of, Right? But the Lord raises up these judges to deliver Israel, and after that, they enjoy some time of peace until that judge dies, and then the cycle starts all over again. And so this morning, our first judge is Othniel, and if you want to dispute how you pronounce that, please do. Um, We just, half the time, make it up as we go. Uh, But Othniel is what we're going to go with, and so if you have an alternate way of saying that, please come to me and we can debate. Um, I was joked, I had a professor in college who had a PhD in linguistics, and he's the only person I ever trusted when it came to biblical name pronunciation, because I really firmly believe that like 99% of people make it up, just whatever they think, right? But Othniel is who we're going to talk about, we're going to be in Judges 3 today, starting in verse 7, so let's see what happens with him. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathaim. Say that three times fast, or name your children that. The king of Mesopotamia and the people of Israel served Cushan-Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. I think they just put his name in there a whole bunch so that, like, thousands of years later, we would just struggle like this. So the land had rest for 40 years, and then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Okay. This is the shortest judge's account. And, and it's really frustrating because when we read this, we really don't learn anything about these people, right? You could put any name into this story in place of the evil guy or the judge, and like, it would be the exact same story, wouldn't it? Like you could say, and then they were taken over by Jim Bob. And like, it wouldn't change anything, and so this, this is a frustrating passage to start out with because there's just so little information And so to understand a little bit about what's happening here, we have to dig deep into some background and just a little bit of language, okay? The evil guy, there's some debate about who he is, and there's a whole bunch of different theories, but the long and short of it is we do not know who this guy is. It's an anonymous ruler, It it really is. No scholars can agree with any kind of consensus over who this guy is that comes in. We know a few things. And it's the linguistic meaning of his name, right? So he's the king of Mesopotamia, which means two rivers. And his first name, Kushan, is just his name. That's like your name. And then Rishathaim in Hebrew means doubly wicked. And so this guy, like the name that we're reading in Judges 3 is Kushan, the doubly wicked king of the two rivers. It's an intimidating name. It's almost kind of like, like Voldemort, if, you, if you've ever read or watched the Harry Potter movies, right? Like, don't, don't say the name. Every time they say the name, <gasps> right? Kushan, the doubly wicked king of the two rivers. And the scripture says it four times in three verses, as if we just need to hear his name over and over again. The idea that we get is whoever this guy is, he is terrifying. Like, gasp, people gasp when they hear his name spoken out loud. And so he comes in and he rules over the Israelites for about eight years until they cry out for a judge to deliver them. And deliver them he does. And so he sends a guy named Othniel, who we learn, again, almost nothing about. Except we know a little more about him than this passage lets on. And for that, we have to go back to Judges 1. So let's take a quick look. This is Judges 1, 11 through 13. This is before the cycle starts when they're successful and they're starting well in the land, right? They're actually doing what the Lord wants them to do. Caleb is kind of taking the reins. We'll get to him in a second. And it says this, From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-sephir. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, I will give him Asha, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, there he is, years and years before, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him a Shah, the da- his daughter, for a wife. Okay, before we get into any of what that means, let's get one thing out of the way. Yes, the guy married his niece. Yes, today that would be super weird. No, at that time, culturally, it was not super weird. This was not some kind of creepy arrangement. This was fairly common practice. There were laws that governed, like, who family-wise could intermarry or not. But marriage during that time, it was a lot more about, like, family ties and maintaining cultural relationships. And so you had these things like kinship laws, like if a, if a wife died, the older brother was expected to marry, or if a husband died, the older brother was expected to marry her, right? That's what we see in the book of Ruth that comes shortly after Judges. Right? The kinsman redeemer who's a relative, marries her and brings her in. And so all of these things that sound gross to us are normal back then. So I just want you to get over that. Some of you might go home and be like, Caleb's brother, okay. whoa. No, that's not okay. It's, it's okay. Today, frowned upon, in that time, totally okay. Okay, having said that, we get a sense of who Uthniel is. He is the little brother of Caleb. And we know who Caleb is Because Caleb was a big deal during this time, right? If you remember, as the people were in the midst of the Exodus, they sent these spies into the land, and amongst them were two guys that we know well, Joshua and Caleb. So they're in the land before they ever come in to take it over. They're spying it out, and they meet all of these rulers and all these armies, and they come back, and the group that went to spy comes to Moses and says, we can't go in there. Those guys are massive. They are scary. They are intimidating. They have 50 billion times the manpower we do, and we're never going to be able to do anything. I know the Lord commanded it, but we can't. Joshua and Caleb are the two guys that stand up alone and say, yeah, we should go. Like, the Lord said he'll take care of us. Why, why wouldn't we go? Well, like, 100 against 10,000? That's fine. Like, it's 100 plus God against 10,000. So, right? They're the only ones that actually have the faithful obedience to not be afraid and to say, if God says we're going to win, we're going to win. And so the Lord punishes the Israelites at that time And that's why they have the 40 years of wandering in the desert, right? They don't get to go into the land. And he says, listen, this whole generation is going to die off before you get to go in. Like your children will get to go into the land, but you won't. Except for what? Joshua and Caleb. You guys will get to go see it. And so at the beginning of Judges, when they start entering the land and Joshua dies, Caleb is in his old age and he has realized the promise that God made to him. Right? He has been faithful and he is now in the land and as part of the deal, he's given an inheritance. He's given a plot of, of land for his people to be and his younger brother is among them. And so as they start taking over territory and conquering in Canaan, we see Caleb practice what we just talked about, is good generational leadership within the church. He knows he's getting old, he's done his conquering, he's lived his faithful life and he's run his race And so now he's training up the next leader. And so in the passage we just read, instead of going against them himself, he says, "We need somebody who will rise up, who will take this over." Is there anybody? I'll give you my daughter as a wife if you do it. Which was also pretty common practice back then. It's not an evil thing. And so Othniel steps up. And what we know about him here is that number one, he steps up and he has victory. Number two, he's faithful. And number three, he has the stamp of approval from Caleb, who has an unbelievable amount of street cred, right? And so when we get to the passage in Judges, where he is raised as the judge to defeat Cushan, right, he is this one judge of faithfulness. He is the one who does things right. He is the beneficiary of good leadership above him, and he's ready to go when he's called upon. And so in some ways, Othniel is this transitional leader in some ways, right? He is a person who is faithful. He's the only judge who we don't hear negative things about. And that's not to say that he was perfect. He was a sinner as everyone else. But But the scriptures don't speak about him in a negative way. He doesn't have a downfall or any kind of negative connotation to him. He comes in and he's faithful, but he fails in one area that scripture doesn't mention but makes implicitly clear. He doesn't practice that good generational leadership. And so when he dies, what happens? Everything goes downhill again, worse than before. And so, as we get into the second judge for today, now when the Lord takes over again and he allows the Israelites to be conquered, it's not for a period of eight years, but it's for 18 years. It gets longer. And it gets more painful. And so Othniel fails to do what we all should take a lesson from and do, is to be constantly thinking about who are we as Christians pouring into. If you've been a Christian for three weeks in your life, there are people in your spheres that you have the ability to walk with and mentor to a degree, as you are under other people. What's the word? You should always have a Paul, and you should always have a Barnabas. And so that's, there's really no good, like, happy ending lesson from this first judge other than that life lesson to take away. Like when you start to think about, well, what do we do with this? Well, not a whole lot, right? And so we get to the second one. And I'm going to give you a disclaimer. Um, If you have a soft stomach, if you're feeling queasy, this would be a time to just plug your ears for like the next 10 minutes. Because the second judge, Ehud, comes in to deliver the people from a king named Eglon. This sounds like like, comic-y to me. Like, these names are just odd names, aren't they? All right. And, and this is probably one of the grossest accounts in all of Scripture, right? Some of the younger folks are like, yeah, I'm waiting for this. Like, Judges, I didn't think I was going to go anywhere, but this is, this is cool stuff, all Right. So let's, let's take a look. This is a longer account, but it's worth reading. And, and you might ask yourself, why are we reading this in its entirety? Can't you just give us the cliff notes so that we don't have to deal with the ugliness? The whole point of Judges is that we have to face... The full ugliness of what happens in the world, right? And so this, this is the account. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. They'd already been taken over. I skipped that part because we'd be here for an hour. Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Notice that. It's, it's a flippant comment, but why is he left-handed? Why does it matter, right? The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. That's about 18 inches long. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Again, why would scripture mention that? And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. So Ehud sends away his own Israelite people so that he's alone with Ehud and his guards. Um, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. Right, so he, he gives him this tribute. He comes to him with honor. It's almost like Trojan horse-like. Right? He, he, he uses flowery language. Oh, wonderful King Eglon, here's this tribute. It's this thing that we have to bring you because you've conquered us. It's probably grain and other food supplies right, that they were like, required to pay because they were under his thumb. But he brings it with joy, and he, and he spurs him on, and he speaks highly of him, and he makes him feel good. And then as everybody's leaving, he turns around, and he says, wait, I have a message, a secret message for you. And so he plays to Eglon's ego. Right? And Eglon says, oh, a secret message? Only for me? That sounds like something that a great king would get. Right? And so he sends all of his people out, and Ehud and Eglon are, are alone in the king's chambers. And then this is what happens next. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Now we're really intrigued. message from God? Well, of course God would speak to me. I am so awesome. And he rose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. I'm really sorry if you've had breakfast already. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and he locked them. So Ehud is nothing like Othniel, in case you haven't gotten that memo. Ehud is a conniving, slimy assassin guy. He knows what to do. like He knows how to handle situations, and he is creative. And so Ehud thinks of something that no one else thinks of. I am left-handed. Why is this important? If you are right-handed, picture being in medieval times and having a sword. What hip are you going to put your sword on? Your left hip, right? Like every other right-handed person, because you draw this way. And so that was common. Left-handedness was not a thing that people really experienced. And so when you would come in to see the king, the guards would pat you down, but they would literally go like this and say, go ahead. And so Ehud was able to sneak in an 18-inch blade Right? This is pre-TSA. right? And he's able to get it in because he's got his sword on this hip and no one thinks to check it because why would anyone in their right mind... like This is just... right? They don't even think that way. They've been doing it like that forever and ever and ever. And so that's how he gets the blade in. He's a sneaky little guy, that Ehud. Right? And so he gets in and he flowers with language and he gets him alone and then he thrusts it in. And, and here's, here's the thing. Um, Eglon gets... Portrayed with ugly terms. And we have to, we have to understand something. Um, making fun of weight in and of itself is not a, a good thing, right? We're not, we're not here to do that. But in this passage, it's not telling us, like the, the description of Eglon, it's not saying that he's very fat just to describe him as an overweight person. It's almost like a way that he is. Like there's there's just a grotesque, like massively like fat in a sense of overabundance and indulgence. Right? He's just, he, he, he is just this, like, I picture like Jabba the Hutt, if you're a Star Wars fan. right? Sitting in his chair, never getting up, like gross, he's got like food, he's just a gross, fat king. right? So don't just, this is not just a play on weight, but it's this like description of who he is as a person in some ways. Right? His name actually means calf or young bull. Right? So everything about how Eglon is named and described is as this like, tyrant king who is just disgusting like you just picture him with like food stuck in his folds it's just nasty right and so that's why it gives this like really disgusting description and the scripture does mean to mock him for who he is right that's why it talks about like this the knife just it went so far in because he was so large that the, the handle like he had stabbed him and then like had to pull his fist out of the guy's body to the point where like you didn't even see a sword anymore. It was like from like 18 inches just didn't even come out the other side probably. Right? And then dung came out. Like his stomach just spills. and He's killed in this disgusting way. Right? And so he is just beyond shamed in the midst of this exchange. And Ehud has his vengeance. He comes in brilliantly. Right? And the humor gets worse. We move from just disgusting killing humor to now talking about potty humor. Again, I'm really sorry. God's word says it. I'm not just wanting to do potty humor from the stage, but when the Lord's word talks about it, we're going to talk about it. So Ehud, after killing him, he leaves the sword, he locks the door, and he escapes, and here's what happens next. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought... Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still didn't open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And then they laid their Lord dead on the floor. He had escaped while they were delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sierra. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And then the next thing that we read for a a bunch of other verses is that he eventually stirs the Israelites on to just crush the Moabites, because they are without a leader and have no one left to help. And so the guards come to the door, and they're locked. And their first assumption, because of who, again, who Eglon is, well, it's probably, you know, it's two o'clock, Yeah, he's probably having his afternoon-long relief of himself, And so they don't go in. Like the guy is dead in this chamber and no one goes to check on him until it gets to be what they say is an embarrassingly long amount of time. I don't know how long that is, um, but a while. And then they finally open the door. We can even assume that there probably was some smell because of death, not because of relieving, but they assumed that it was probably that. And so they had kind of a confirmation there to go off of. And When they finally go in, their guy is dead. And this has given Ehud enough time to escape entirely unnoticed. When they discover his body, Ehud is long gone. He goes back to the Israelites, he sounds the trumpet, he's like, I have killed their leader, let's get behind me, and let's go take care of business. And they go, and they completely crush the Israelites. What's the significance about this story? This judge is not really godly, right? This is not generally how the Lord gives Israelites victory. If you look throughout Scripture at times where the Lord is with his people, and they experience victory in the Lord... It's this, like, mighty thing that usually happens. Or at the very least, what happens is this. It becomes abundantly clear that it was the Lord that did it and not the people. Right? Think of the Exodus. Like, the Lord parted the sea, and then he swallowed up the army. Like, no Israelites got to the other end and were like, yeah, we did that. Right? Or one smart guy, like Moses, was like, all part of my plan, part of the sea. No. But here in this story... It's really hard to give God the credit, isn't it? Now, he is at work and he is doing things, but if you just observe this story, the the temptation that you have as Israel, as God's people, is to go, Ehud's a brilliant guy. I don't know where the Lord was here, but at least we have that guy who thought about it, right? The way that this whole thing goes down is not the way that the Lord would normally do things. And so, yes, God is at work. Yes, God raised up Ehud. Yes, Ehud has a whole lot of faults and failures. And he does things his own way. And so the Lord uses him despite himself, not because of himself. And the Lord still gives them peace under Ehud. Right. Even though he's not acting well. And if you're looking for a nice way to wrap up this story, there isn't one. There's no redemption here. The Israelites enjoyed about 80 years of peace after Ehud, and then he died, and then next week we're going to get to the the next judge and his cycle and all the things that come with that. And it just spirals worse and worse and worse. It almost makes you wonder how they actually served the Lord well under Ehud for 80 years before he died. Because there's not a lot given that tells us that he is a faithful guy. He's a failure, an assassin, and a slime ball that the Lord uses despite who he is. To accomplish his purpose. And the Israelites end up back in the fold for just a little bit of time. And if you want just the slightest lesson from this passage. Here, here is the best that I can offer you. King Eglon was terrifying. He tormented God's people. But yet he is portrayed as this very fat, bumbling, self-centered idiot. He is mocked. Like he, he tormented God's people. But yet scripture sees it fit to make a complete laughable mockery out of this guy, right? You just look at him and go, oh, man, that is a weird guy. I'm glad he's dead. No one here feels for Eglon, right? And so what scripture sometimes will do, right, is it actually will make fun of the enemies of the Lord. Here's a helpful passage for us, and it's in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. When the rulers of this world, who are seeking to be against God, make their plans and take things over and think that they have it made and that they own this place, The Lord sometimes just laughs. The one beauty of this story is that we actually get to see the evil rulers of this world through the lens of God himself. We see them as God sees him. And so from the Israelites' vantage point, this guy is terrifying. To God, he's just a fat idiot that's ready to be killed. That's all he is. He is a thing that stands in the way of his purposes and his plan. And so the Lord deals with him. Is it pretty? No. But he deals with him. And it's not ironic that his name actually means calf or young bull. Because just like a fattened bull of sacrifice, this guy is ripe for slaughter when it comes to being in the way of what God's plans are. And God just crushes him. And takes him out. And makes a mockery of him in the process of doing it. Because we serve a Lord who is more powerful than the most intimidating of enemies that we could possibly imagine and concoct in our own heads. That's the best that we can take from this passage. And so I want to th- want you to think about that throughout this week. This doesn't mean that you go to the people that have been enemies in your life and you just start making fun of them. That's not what this passage is about. Please don't go do that in the name of Jesus. Um, that just would be damaging, right? But, but the Lord laughs at their efforts to thwart his plans. And so we as his people are granted permission to celebrate that the Lord will conquer them one day. We can live in celebration that whatever trials we face, whatever enemies might come our way, that he ultimately will have victory. And if we are following him, we will follow him in that victory. And sometimes it's just ugly in this world. But the Lord will have his way, one way or another. Next week, we'll look at the continued spiral. We'll see how the Israelite people, their character starts to permanently change as they go into the next couple cycles. Things just get worse and worse and worse. But until that point, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God of victory. We thank you that as we face trials, that we know that you are there. And, Lord, we thank you for accounts like this, even though they are hard to process and and, and include things that we really don't want to talk about in church or think about. But, Lord, you put it in your word because you want us to understand who you are, Lord. And you are a God who will not endure to be mocked. You just won't. We thank you for your presence in our midst. Thank you for the fact that you rule in our lives, Lord, and that all the things that you desire to come to pass for us will come to pass because of your power and your grace and your mercy. Lord, be with us this week as we go out and we seek to live out your word and be your presence in the world among us, Lord. We pray that you would put in our midst people to to pour into, to train up as the next generation, Lord, that as we come and go that your church will continue and thrive because it's not about us, it is about you. Be with us this week as we go out. We love and praise you. And all those people said, amen.